Welcome to the Two Cities Podcast. I'm John Anthony Dunn, and today we're going to talk about social identity theory and our political discourse. And joining me to have this conversation is Dr. Chris Porter, who has a PhD from Ridley College in Melbourne and is currently a postdoc at Trinity College, Melbourne. How's it going, Chris? Yeah, doing well. Early morning here, and it's lovely. Well, it's snowing right now here in Minnesota. And I, I'm, I'm missing the cool weather at this time of year, I got to say. Yeah. So obviously the reason why it's warmer for you is because you're in Australia. And speaking of being in Australia, curious to know what your thoughts are about the whole political situation for us here in the States. We're a few weeks out from Election Day. Some of us, like myself, have already voted, but it's going to be a wild couple of weeks. What are your, what are your thoughts? Yeah, it's, it's crazy. Um, just looking on, I mean, the whole voting system in, in America just and lead up to it, which runs for almost two years beforehand, is just insane. But right. I, I think we, I pay a, a, fair, a reasonable amount of attention to the American election cycle because uh, in November, every four years we have, well, every four years you have an election and every November we're in the States for SBL normally. That's right. Yeah. You're being the exception to that, of course. And so, Looking on, I think Australians often find American politics quite bizarre. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you have a two-party system effectively where only two parties are big enough to be able to hold any sort of power, uh, right. very few independents. Mm-hmm. Uh, whereas in Australia, we, we still have, also have a two-majority party system, but we have a Greens party, which, is, mm-hmm. um, which has a reasonable amount of power and a whole bunch of minor parties and independents who get voted in on, on a fairly regular basis. Mm-hmm. And I think one of the things that Australians often find really weird about American politics is just the the lack of bipartisan engagement. Mm-hmm. You're either red or you're blue. You're a donkey mm-hmm. or you're an elephant. And and for that matter, donkeys and elephants, what's the go there? <laughs> I mean, I don't know many other um, you know p- places where you not anthropomorphize, you, you animalize mm-hmm. the, uh, the political parties. This is just completely bizarre. And then how much people um, ascribe their identity, their, who they are mm-hmm. to their party. Mm-hmm. Um, we get a, bit, a little bit of that here between the Labor Party and the Liberal Party. For those listening on, our Liberal Party is on the right wing of the spectrum. You know, being in Australia, we have to have everything upside down and back to front. <laughs> so we, uh, our political spectrum is a little bit different, but uh, we, we do get uh, some of that sort of party politics here and party identification, but not to the same degree as you, you do mm. in the States. Yeah. So speaking of that lack of bipartisanship in America, of course, that is a more recent thing in terms of how bad it's gotten. It's gotten quite out of control. But you're talking about political identification. And so that's a good segue into kind of just having a bit of an overview of what is social identity theory itself. And and, and we'll you know begin to think about how this might be really helpful for us as we think about that political identification and then political discourse that stems from that identification. Yeah, for sure. Um, so social identity theory is a socio-cognitive psychological approach to how groups operate and how groups interact, but also how people identify as part of the group that they're uh, within. So it's not just about how the social aspects are, but the personal aspects or the individual aspects as they relate to the group. Uh, so it was initially defined or initially sort of set forth by a Polish Jew uh, called Henri Tajfel, uh, mm-hmm. and his sort of impetus for it was in World War II, he was 
captured as part of the French army in the first German run across um, France and sent to the concentration camps, where, at which point he was he was mistaken in his identity. Uh, the, the German uh, captors thought that he was a French Jew, mm. not a Polish Jew. And so if he was a Polish Jew, he would have probably been sent to Treblinka, uh, which is in one of the concentration camps uh, in the east, uh, where most of the uh, Jewish population were gassed, Mm. uh, including most of his family. Uh, But instead, he remained in the west of Europe, uh, where far fewer were. And uh, there was a policy of not sending the French Jews uh, in, in the same degree to the chambers. And so he, at the end of the war, he ascribed his entire survival of uh, of his years in the concentration camps to being a mistaken identity, to being mistaken either as a Frenchman versus a Pole or as a non-Jew versus a Jew. There's a bit of consternation there as to which identity was mistaken. Mm. But he realized that there's a significant amount of who you are, who we are as people, uh, which is tied up in the groups that we're part of. Mm-hmm. And so he went on to, to look at social identity theory and he defined social identity as uh, that part of the individual self-concept, which derives from their knowledge of their membership of a social group or, or groups for that matter, multiple groups, mm-hmm. together with the value and emotional significance attached to that membership. So it's really about uh, how people identify as, as people within a group uh, and also ascribe uh, value and emotional significance to that. Um, membership within the group mm-hmm. and you we can see this at every element of society whether that's uh, the football teams we support right, uh, right. Or, or for that matter being a football versus a hockey uh yeah, exactly. su- supporter uh, ha- and and i mean baseball's uh just is it wrapping up at the moment i, I i'm not a baseball follower but yep the world uh, series about now yep the world series is is up next uh, I'm pretty sure Chris Chris Song is uh, is watching baseball instead of being on the on the podcast with us at the moment. Yeah, especially, <laughs> especially because the Dodgers won Game Seven last night to make their way to the World Series. So, so he's definitely going to be deep down that hole. Yeah, uh, but being a follower of a certain sport, or for that matter, as more relevant to our, to our conversation today, being a supporter of a political party mm-hmm. isn't just about the cognitive, what I think about things or how, I, how do I understand things, but the value and emotional significance that comes from being part of that. Mm-hmm. So the way that this tends to work out for, um, for the majority of people and, and the way that we can observe it happening uh, is through three uh, kind of pithy uh, functions, cognitive functions or processes that we go through. Uh, the first one is uh, thinking about normative fit, uh, which is thinking about how do I know that I'm part of a group? What are the normative things for this group? You know, I'm a cheesehead, so I'm a Packers <laughs> fan. Uh, so the, one of the normative things for that is a, a love of uh, Green Bay, mm-hmm. a, a love of Aaron Rodgers, mm-hmm. uh, a, a distinct sense of displeasure about watching uh, Tampa Bay uh, <laughs> on the weekend. Right, um, right. But then, but then there's also the comparative fit. How do I know that those other people in another group aren't part of my group as well? Mm. And what are the things that set my group apart from that other group? Uh, so, you know, that may be the politics that we have. That may be the locations that we have. That may be shibboleths, uh, to use mm. the biblical term, shibboleth, uh, the accent or the dialect that we speak. Yeah. Uh, that may be um, how we 
engage with the world regularly when I'm in the States, I'm, I'm identified by my accent. Mm. I'm identified as an outgroup member. I'm not an American mm. because I'm an Australian. Mm-hmm. And so that is one of those interesting things uh, with the, the comparative fit. And then the last one is categorization. Uh, so we, we want to be able to quickly assess whether people are part of our group or not part of our group. Mm-hmm. And so we categorize. And the way that we often do that is we create stereotypes. And mm-hmm. a stereotype is not necessarily a negative thing. Stereotyping is just a process of being able to uh, put things into categories. So, for example, if you're, if you're walking along the road and you see an animal with uh, four, four feet or four legs for a tail coming towards you, it's probably mm-hmm. a dog or a cat. Mm-hmm. Uh, but if you're in the bush in um, sub-Saharan Africa and you see an animal with four legs, a tail, and you know fur coming towards you, growling, it's mm-hmm. probably a lion and you should mm-hmm. run. Yeah. Uh, they, that's why we need to categorize well. Mm-hmm. Uh, and of course, mm-hmm. sometimes categories, are, we struggle with categories uh, mm-hmm. that we, we don't necessarily have the right, the category for things. So for example, a bird... Uh, is usually categorized as something with feathers, wings, a beak, flies. Uh, so, you know, you see a seagull or you see a pigeon, you see a dove, mm. they all fit into that category. Mm-hmm. But, and, and so we have a stereotypical bird image mm-hmm. in our head. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is what a stereotypical bird looks like. Mm-hmm. Uh, what happens when you get a pigeon, uh, when you get an ostrich? Mm-hmm. Or what happens when you get a, a penguin? Right, um, right. These are, aren't stereotypical birds, so we have to spend a lot more time categorizing them. Uh, on a hu- more, more humor, humorous side of things, uh, my son learned that the category of dog um, has four legs, a tail, and it's big, and it's scary. Uh, he also learned the category of rat, which uh, my, my wife is, is afraid of rodents. Uh, they have, they're fairly small, have whiskers, a tail, furry, um, low to the ground. Well, I was pushing him along in his pram one day, and. Um, a guy came to, walking towards us in the other direction uh, with a chihuahua on a lead. And my, my son goes, rat, rat, <laughs> because it, fit, it was closer to his stereotype of a rat than it was of a dog. Oh, that's a great example. Well, so following up on this idea of stereotyping and compartmentalizing, categorizing. So where is the line? When is it a problem? And uh, specifically, I think about like generalizations, right? So we can often generalize and this is where things like you know our prejudicial sort of stereotyping like really comes in so maybe for listeners who who recognize that stereotyping is inevitable categorization is inevitable but there's also obvious problems that societally we we have with stereotyping as well could you say a little bit more about that yeah, for sure. Um, I think the big struggle with stereotyping and for, for that matter, group identification as a whole uh, comes with value and emotional significance. It's that side of the, the equation which really drives a lot of the negative aspects. Uh, so Tashfell was originally interested in why people estimate certain lines as longer than others, visual perception issues. Mm. And so one of the things he noticed was that people ascribed value to things with that were that were close to. So if you had people estimating the size of cardboard discs, uh, cardboard circles, mm-hmm. and they could generally estimate them as reasonably close to their actual size, but you had them estimate the size of coins and coins that were worth more were often ascribed a greater size. They were perceptually overestimated than the size that they actually were. That was it. That's a value and emotional significance associated with the visual processing and visual stereotyping. Mm. 
And you notice that we actually do this in group interaction as well. So one of the really early experiments in social identity theory was to look at what makes up a group. What's the minimum set of uh, of characteristics that make up a group? And so he has assigned a whole bunch of people to either one of two groups, uh, whether or not they liked the artist uh, Paul Klee or Vasily Kodinsky better. So completely uh, abstract conceptual groups. Uh, do you like Klee or Kodinsky? Are you a Klee person or are you a Kodinsky person? What he didn't tell them was that they're actually completely randomly assigned. Uh, mm. he, he didn't care whether or not they like Klee or Kodinsky. He just randomly assigned them to one of two groups. He then asked them to do a whole bunch of tests about assigning funds, assigning money to their group or members of the other group. And he has a forced choice. So you could assign $4 to your group and $3 to the other group, or you can assign $10 to your group and $10 to the other group and things like this. Um, and you, you had to choose between a bunch of pairs, uh, pairs of, of money assignments. What he found wasn't just that people favored their own in-group, uh, that they assigned more money to their in-group, but they actively assigned more money to the in-group where the out-group got the least amount possible. Oh, wow. So they, they didn't just maximize in-group profit. They maximized uh, intergroup differentiation. Wow. Uh, so they favored their own group at the expense of the other group, even if that meant that they didn't get as much money in the end. Right. Um, that is so Wow. Yeah. So, so that, that's one of those areas where um, that suddenly the stereotyping takes on a more sinister note, doesn't it? Right. Um, people aren't just prioritizing their group, but they're prioritizing their group at the detriment of another group to maximize the differentiation between two groups. Uh, I think we see this all the time in sports. We'll just choose a neutral thing. Uh, Are sports neutral these days? I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) Um, We're we're not, we're not close to the Super Bowl yet, but, um, and I won't mention the world series, (laughs) but um, we see that in, in in the football where people barrack for teams that can set their team up in a better position on the ladder by making totally. other team lose. I'm definitely that kind of a, a sports fan. I, I root in the the way that will most benefit my favorite teams. And so like when other teams are playing each other, I think about playoff ramifications, uh, you know, these sorts of things. I totally, totally get that. Yeah. So, so everyone wants to see the Patriots lose because their, their team will end up going against Pats mm-hmm. in the, in the um, postseason, And so therefore they want to see the Pats as low down the ladder as they can. And I think you see this in all sort, all sorts of aspects, and it it really highlights where we find our group value and our group identity really matters, mm-hmm. uh, because it matters then what uh, groups we're going to be diminishing, what groups mm-hmm. we're going to be literally discriminating against. Right, right. And speaking of discrimination, I mean, one of the main ways that we do that is in our discourse and in the way that we talk to each other on Facebook, because there's a lot of division right now in American politics, uh, it just gets uh, really bad, really heated. Uh, and and, and uh, so our, our discourse is riddled with all sorts of stereotyping that is beyond just kind of the mere categorization of okay if you're more blue or if you're more red you vote like this or that it gets quite nasty there's a villainification that takes place yeah could you maybe share a little bit about that process yeah and and i I think the one of the aspects there is that social media has taken our in-group discourse and amplified it to the world Mm. Uh, so you know in, in the past you said we'd have to pick up the phone or before that we'd have to um, write a letter to someone in order to be able to have discourse with them if they weren't physically with us. These days uh, we can 
we've taken that what is generally a private domain of discourse um, to people on a phone or a, a group phone call or a, a circular letter. But we've taken that, we've made it completely public and instant. So we've ta- you can write on someone's wall or you can, yeah. um, you can send group chat messages, which can be screenshot and shared on you know, mm. whatever social platform. And we see this quite regularly, um, people screenshotting others' private messages and, and sending them out to the world. Mm. Uh, but that makes this degree of discourse more focused around the normative and comparative fit metrics and, and how you categorize uh, because suddenly there is, um, there's no guarantee that there is normativity in your uh, group because mm. others can be watching on. Mm. And so you have this, this discourse, which is by its very nature focused on comparativity. Mm. Um, so making sure that everyone knows that th- this group is out or that you're in this group. And that's amplified by uh, especially Facebook uh, and I'm guessing most of the other social media metrics where the way that we consume media influences the media that it shows to us. Mm-hmm. And so the more that we consume media, which fits within what Facebook or whatever social media thinks our group paradigm is, the more we'll get to see that. And so we end up becoming siloed in our discourse, but not just siloed in our media discourse. So what is being fed to us? Mm-hmm. Uh, so in the past, you know, in Australia, you might've been a subscriber to one news service or one, one newspaper, or your family might've always watched a certain TV news each night. And that's what, so what's being fed to us. But now it's not just that uh, it's being fed to us from externally, but it's being reinforced internally. So it's not just, it's people from within our group, within our tribe who are saying the same things and we're only seeing what they're saying. Mm-hmm. Whereas in, a, in the market square prior, you would have been able to hear what other people are saying. You, you know, there's that theoretical level of discourse that happens at the city gate, to use the biblical metaphor of mm-hmm. as people come to the city gate to be able to discuss things. Mm-hmm. These days, our media and our discourse is so siloed that we're only hearing in-group voices. Mm-hmm. Uh, which makes it very easy and very powerful to denigrate outgroup voices. And it becomes a very significant way of being able to do that. It comes back to that emotional significance. If the only people that you know are part of a certain, in this case, political in-group, then to leave that in-group or to question that in-group doesn't just call into question your beliefs or Mm -hmm. your thoughts or your cognition, Mm -hmm. but your values and your emotional significance. Mm -hmm. Uh, Who who am I as a person if I'm not a Democrat or who am I if I'm as a person, if I'm not a Republican Mm -hmm. uh, is becomes those, the way that people start thinking about their tribes. Mm -hmm. Uh, People start identifying primarily as a adherent of their political party. Right. Uh, and you can extend this to to religion, to to the church, where denominations become more uh, salient. You can extend it to to all sorts of different aspects. Sadly, it often comes up in confl- in times of conflict. So uh, we saw in the Rwandan genocide the very stark uh, differentiation that come came from the stereotyping and siloing of uh, Hutus and Tutsis which was mainly a external intervention 
on the tribe system uh, from from the Belgian colonializers, mm. uh, categorizing people into Hutus and Tutsis, mm. and therefore the value and the emotional significance of being one of those two tribes led to uh, all-out bloodshed and war and genocide. So we can see very easily where this falls down, I think. So if, if the end result is intergroup conflict and, and violence, I mean, that's a... Uh... Uh, a horrible thing to think about. And, and in the States right now, there are groups who are, you know, essentially talking like, you know, if the other side wins, then, you know, all hell's going to break loose, right? There are people that are talking like that. And there are voices, you know, journalists who are talking about like, you know, are we seeing the beginning of a, another civil war? These are horrifying thoughts, but they're rooted in this kind of social identity dynamic where the us them is so strong that the us of American is obliterated, basically. What are, what are your thoughts about that? Yeah, and and I think we've even seen a little bit of it already uh, with a couple of shootings and then people yes. driving cars into protests. But then, yes, yes. Uh, the and, and even um, I guess I guess as an example of how intergroup discourse goes wrong, the, you know, the Proud Boys rally, exactly, um, and then suddenly you had on Twitter whole bunches of um, same-sex attracted men right. um, posting posting gay photos and and I use the term gay because I use it yeah. uh, po- posting gay photos under the hashtag proud boys. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so this just serves to reinforce the discourse and reinforce uh, the, the conversation. Mm-hmm. And I think part of the struggle here is that it feels in order to, to foster discourse and in order to foster um, intergroup uh, conversation which leads to conflict reduction it can feel a lot like compromise Uh, you're compromising on your beliefs you're compromising on what's normative for your group you're compromising on what's um comparative what who the other is Mm -hmm. and it it can be incredibly difficult to do and i i think often it comes through external or, or um to, to use what Murray Bowen talks about in family systems theory, a triangulation metric. Um, it comes through an external aspect, some, some third party part, which can be triangulated in so you can find common ground. Um, so one of the areas I think this often happens is in music. Uh, I know I noted last week, uh, or a couple of weeks ago, when we were talking about, um, about pacifism, the the place of metal uh, yep, yep. in in that, and which which brings people together, mm-hmm. uh, from both parts of the spectrum. And and I'm reminded of uh, the story of Daryl Davis, who's a American boogie woogie piano player, mm. uh, big African American man, who his hobby is to befriend uh, members of the Ku Klux Klan and to extricate them from the clan, including a couple of grand wizards and, and wow. some others. And uh, the, he has a, a documentary called Accidental Courtesy, which is amazing. Mm. Uh, but I think one of the, the areas there is that um, there's a, a, almost a neutral ground or a, a shared common interest, a shared social group. So we, we talked earlier that, that our political parties or our conflict groups aren't necessarily the only groups that we're part of. Mm-hmm. We may have plenty of other shared interests or shared groups that um, are f- fertile ground for in- intergroup on that level, but intragroup on a different level. For example, you and I both aficionados of craft beer yep. and there'll be many, many others who 
we would probably disagree with on a whole bunch of issues, mm. uh, be they political, be they uh, questions of religion, mm-hmm. uh, be they questions on the new perspective, yep, um, all sorts of issues like that. Yeah, who would be more than happy to sit down over a beer with and and, right. and chat about all sorts of things, right. including uh, those conflictual issues. Mm-hmm. And while it may seem like compromising on the conflict groups, mm-hmm. it's not compromising on the shared craft beer loving group or the the football supporting or whichever other category uh which other other group that we're they're part of right. that we share right yeah I, I i'd like to um chat a little bit more about the topic of compromise because that's something that we have been discussing in our conversation on faith and politics and and also the conversation on uh war and political theology is actually this topic of compromise so we heard from reverend mave sherlock that basically every important relationship that she's ever had, anything that's really important that she's ever been involved with has has necessitated some level of compromise. And that was a really interesting insight for us to all hear. And last week, uh, Michael Spallioni talked about compromise and talked about how he's kind of an all or nothing sort of person and how there's not for him, there's not much wiggle room with when it comes to compromise because he brought up the example of the Donner Party and just cannibalism and just thinking, you know, how do you sort of, you know, have a moderate approach with cannibalism, right? Like, oh, it's just one finger or something like that, right? And, you know, for him, for him, like kind of the idea of moderation in everything is a kind of excessive idea, right? Because you're not moderate in your moderation, uh, which is which is an interesting, you know, thing to think about. And I, and I love that the last, those two episodes basically juxtapose kind of different perspectives on compromise. It's sort of like the the two proverbs side by side where it's like, you know, answer not a fool in his folly and answer a fool in his folly, right? There's um, just kind of a beautiful juxtaposition. But I'd like for us to think about this a little bit more because kind of what I gather is really what, what um, Maeve was getting at is this idea that, you know, you're not always going to get 100% of what you want, right? In terms of political, she's a politician, right? So that's kind of where she's coming from. You're not always going to get 100% of what you want. So you, you know, you, you, you make the proposal that you think is like in the best interest of all your constituents, et cetera, in your neighbor and your people more broadly. But at the end of the day, when you're working with other politicians who are have different purposes or whatever, you can't really have this kind of all or nothing attitude that you need to be able to say like, okay, well, if I can't get 100% of what I, I feel like we all need, I want to aim for that 70%, right? So, or something like that, right? And I'm not, not trying to speak on her behalf, but this is just kind of how I was taking her perspective. Now, that's really hard uh, for us in, 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 in America right now. So many of us are just decidedly on one side of the aisle or another. I mean, they talk about these mythical creatures called undecided voters. I don't know that they really exist, um, <laughs> but but it's quite partisan. And it's so partisan that it's, it's viewed as extreme compromise to have any nuanced thinking, right? You are either completely on board with everything that is a talking point on the right or completely on board with everything that is a talking point on the left. And there's a lack of that kind of nuanced thinking a lack of this ability to kind of be a part of that in-group, but also self-critically reflect upon maybe those aspects about the in-group that one isn't entirely on board with. What are your thoughts about navigating this issue of compromise relative to identity? Yeah. And I think compromise is a a real, it's, there's a real struggle in thinking about how we identify as part of groups and how we engage in 
in compromise or whether or not that involves engaging in compromise. I, I found it funny, interesting uh, as an Anglican, Anglicans follow the the middle way. We we want the we want the way that is between other things. So I'm not surprised that Maeve uh, went down that that line, both as a politician and as an Anglican. Uh-huh. Um, but um, but Michael Spallioni, I found interesting because in citing the Donner Party, the Donner Party effectively compromised on cannibalism. Mm. Uh, they compromised on on, but they held strong to the to a non-compromising view on living, in order to 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 hold a strong position on non-cannibalism. Mm-hmm. You have to hold a, you have to compromise on another group dynamic, which is the ability to be able to feed feed yourself and who's who's going to die. Mm-hmm. Um, and and this is where I think sometimes we reduce, and, it's, and I find this especially in political discourse. Um, but we reduced uh, certain gr- intergroup discourse and we down to talking points, mm-hmm. but we make those in those groups the primary aspects. Mm-hmm. So in an election year. Uh, people aren't going to be have have what's salient, what is at the forefront of their minds, as the other groups that they're part of. Uh, so people cease to be Californians or uh, you know, New Yorkers. They become uh, Democrats. They cease to be uh, Texans. They become Republicans, mm. uh, and that in itself becomes a compromise because there are many things that uh, the the federal uh, apparatus does, which actually go against you, the best interests of your state. In the same way, there are many things that that maybe features of the party that you follow, which you have to give up, other or you have to compromise on other beliefs in order to be able to to follow those um, those tenets. And we because we flatten things out to single groups. Uh, what is the group that's most salient? What's the group that's most important to us at any one time? I think often we we make the compromise to, in a total form. We totalize the compromise, mm. uh, whereas in in any other form of um, discourse, uh, in any other form of engagement, we're constantly juggling the the various groups that we're part of. And so, while it may be a in in order to hold true to a certain group, uh, hold true to a certain ideology, hold true to a certain value and significance in a membership and that's salient or that's important for a certain context it's inevitably going to compromise another area and Mm -hmm. so we happily juggle those compromises in almost any other area of life Mm -hmm. Um, sometimes there are things that come up for us there are contextual situations Mm -hmm. um, where we, we seem to say no we we can't compromise on x y or z aspect But it's not that we, in saying that we can't compromise on that aspect, it's not that we are then saying that we can't compromise on every aspect. Uh, but it is uh, saying that the other as- aspects that we are compromising on are less important than the one aspect that we're not compromising on. This, I think, comes back to the discourse, uh, where, where it comes back to discourse and says, because there's no other voices in the room, uh, we don't see the compromise that we're making. We don't see how not compromising on X means compromise on Y. Yeah, you know, thinking of some concrete examples, I think of like Mitt Romney being the only Republican to vote in favor of impeaching Donald Trump. On social media, I saw a number of people say like, oh, he's 
he's not really a Republican or like he's, he's outed himself as, you know, being, you know, a secret Democrat or these sorts of things. And it's, um, yeah, it's this inability to, to think about Republican identity outside of towing the line on everything, you know? Um, and similarly, like right now with the whole Republicans for Biden dynamic, you know, as another kind of concrete example of a group that's saying, this is our identity. And within that identity, we are voting in a particular way that seems out of step with, you know, broader mainstream Republicanism, as you say, mainstream as it has become in recent years. Uh, it's not out of step with, of course, historic Republicanism. It's uh, the party as a whole is not where <laughs> this group is at, obviously. Yeah. But maybe share a little bit about these concrete examples of people who essentially are planting a flag as, and saying that they are doing the, these sorts of things as Republicans from within a particular identity, you know. Yeah, and I think that's that's one of the big struggles in that, as we talked earlier, the there's a normative fit. There are the things that are normative, the things that are that let you know that you're part of a group. Uh, but they they tend to be the things that theoretically everyone shares in that group. So you may have tenets A, B, C, D, E, F um, of things that which people believe individually believe make them part of a group. Uh, so being pro life or pro-choice, holding to certain economic outcomes. Are you an, an objectivist? Are you a realist? Uh, what's your your position on big and small government? Uh, these are all aspects um, of what people find normative about a group. And they tend to be, to some degree, shared, uh, but they're often they're assumed mm-hmm. uh, that if you're, uh, if you're a Republican, you must be pro-life. Mm-hmm. If you're a Democrat, you must be pro-choice. Mm-hmm. They're, they're assumed characteristics. And, and rather, um, a, a lot of our current discourse happens on the comparative fit level. Uh, so we do, it's not, we're not talking about what makes us in. We're talking about what makes other people out. Uh, so when you, when you get these Republicans for Biden or you get uh, Mitt Romney uh, endorsing, endorsing the impeachment, this, this is a comparative fit metric. Uh, they are different to us because we would not endorse Biden. We would not vote for impeachment. So therefore, even though they may share a, a broad range of normative characteristics with us, we see the comparative aspect and say that they are not part of our group. Mm-hmm. Can you talk a little bit about how um, it's particularly difficult to speak critically or negatively about one's in-group and and that dynamic of social identity. Because obviously Romney and these other Republicans who are quote unquote, like never Trumpers, right? As they're sometimes called, this is not something that is perceived by the broader Republican party as it's not part of the normative fit that we all are on board with Trump or that this sort of sort of thing. Why, why is it particularly tricky to say anything critical or negative about one's in-group? Yeah. And I think there's, this is one of the struggles that we have in our modern era. Um, one of the things with leadership is that leaders are expected to uh, champion the activities of the group. Mm. Uh, they're expected to be uh, not just in-group members, but prototypical in-group members, ones that that are embody all of the characteristics and do so visibly and do so uh, in, in such a way that that 
espouses the, the very nature of the group. Uh, and, that, and so Alex Haslam and Steve Riker and Michael Plateau have a really good book called The New Psychology of Leadership, which goes into this as uh, leaders are champions for their group, not mm. just the great men of history, but they're, they're really group champions. Mm. Um, and so therefore criticizing your own group mm. uh, shows you to be a deviant from that group as well. Mm. And this is one of the paradoxes that we have with leadership. In order to get a group to do something, where even if that, that is uh, in line with the aims and aspirations of that group, you still have to be deviant from the position that you, that you have. You have to input power into the group. I mean, Newton's laws say that a, a body at rest will continue to stay at rest until it is given a push. Mm-hmm. Uh, in terms of social dynamics, that push comes from a leader or from, mm-hmm. from a groundswell of the group. Uh, so, But some form of power being exerted upon the group in order to make it change. Mm-hmm. When that comes from within, uh, when that comes from the inside, it means that there is a, a difference from an intrinsic difference between that leader, uh, say Mitt Romney in this case, and the rest of the group. That means that there is a point of comparison. There's a point of comparative fit, which is not normative. Mm. And that's what makes it so hard because it runs every time you want to change a group or you want a group to move, Mm -hmm. you run the risk of splintering the group into subgroups. Mm -hmm. Uh, And suddenly you don't have, you you don't have one group, you have two groups. Mm. You have Republicans for Trump and you have Republicans for Biden. Right. Um, At that point, it ceases to be in intra-group discourse, mm. i.e. discourse within your group, uh, but it becomes discourse out of your group mm-hmm. uh, because you've suddenly created two groups. And there, there are ways of being able to reunify those groups to be able to appeal to what we call a superordinate group, the group that sits above both of those subgroups, um, and to move things along that way. Uh, but one of the ways that our siloing works in social media is that social media is very rapid in the algorithms to detect these splits in groups mm. and uh, does so you know, by the ways that people like or you know, use different emoticons or write vitriol and um, things. And so therefore, those, it reifies and it codifies those two subgroups, which makes appeals to the superordinate group much more difficult. Mm. Uh, so my my doctoral thesis was actually on looking at uh, appeals to the superordinate group of Judaism uh, within the Gospel of John. Uh, mm-hmm. So you, you've got these two groups, uh, Eudaioi Jews mm-hmm. and the, the Christ-following Jews of um, the disciples and, and others who follow after Jesus in the Gospel. How are these two groups appealing to, or how, how does the Gospel appeal to these to the superordinate group to try and reunite these two groups under the Lordship of Jesus? Mm-hmm. It's, and it's supremely difficult to do. I think the Gospel of John fails at doing this. Historically, we can see in the parting of the ways that it fails at doing this. Mm, and mm. we see over and time and time again throughout history that this sort of group discourse often f- fails. It fails mm. just as much as it succeeds, if not more than it succeeds. Mm. Uh, one of the, um, the, I guess, the uplifting stories is that of uh, in, Bulg- in Bulgaria during World War II, Politicians successfully appealed to uh, the superordinate group of Bulgarian as superseding, and anyone, anyone who's thinking theologically will, will bristle at this, as superseding the category of Jew. So Bulgarian Jews during World War II were not primarily Jewish. They were primarily Bulgarian. Mm. Their Bulgarian identity superseded their Jewish identity. And because of that, they were categorized as Bulgarian prisoners of war, not Jewish prisoners of war, and so therefore weren't sent to the to the concentration camps and to the gas chambers. And so, to, in order to try and appeal to a superordinate group, is very risky. 
to appeal for, for Romney or for the Republicans for Biden, to appeal to the super audit group of Republican is very, very risky in terms of their category membership. And mm. it can very easily become an outgroup member for the category. And no one wants to become an outgroup member of a category because we have so much value and significance mm-hmm. attached to that. And, and especially for a politician who doesn't just have value and significance attached to it, but they have their job and the fact that they can get voted, voted out at the next election attached to that. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's, that's a really helpful way of thinking about it. And maybe as a kind of final question to kind of make it even more specific is to think about those within evangelicalism who don't sort of fit the voting block, right? So if you watch CNN or Fox News or any of our major media outlets, whenever they talk about evangelicals, right, there's always this idea that they are, you know, quite conservative. And apparently the majority of evangelicals are, right, politically. But that's not true for many evangelicals. And it's always frustrating to be sort of lumped into these larger categories. And and for some of us, it it, it makes us wonder if uh, sort of evangelical is is a, is like a, a misnomer, for example, where like the term is not helpful anymore because it only conjures up you know certain political trends uh, rather than our sort of historic values as far as conversionism and you know evangelism and these sorts of th- and personal transformation and these sorts of things, right? And you almost wonder if like harping on this, it kind of creates a false etymology, right? Where it's like, well, that's what the term used to mean, <laughs> but it doesn't anymore, yeah. right? In terms of in terms of discourse, in terms of our language, um, that's not what the term means anymore. Now it means a conservative voting block. And it's like, well, shoot. Uh, so so now 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 those of us who aren't uh, politically conservative, are we on are we in an out group, right? Uh, so maybe as we close, thoughts about that. Yeah, and and I think as an Australian, and John, you'd have experience with this from your time in Scotland. Being an evangelical in Australia and being an evangelical in the UK is means something very different in totally. terms of political reification. Totally. And and when when people um, here in Australia use the term evangelical, they often import the American meaning into it in terms of conservatism, in terms of various different political choices, which don't necessarily make sense. So the the way that categorization is done, the stereotype that is formed of a Republican right-leaning voter in Australia often uh, is as false as it is true because we don't actually have the structures behind the category that has been imported. The stereotype doesn't fit to use a Cinderella, uh, Cinderella analogy. The shoe doesn't fit the princess. Yeah. Mm. Um, and yet, People and our media, because of the the globalized nature of the media market and um, the globalized nature of social media, keep wanting to shove the shoe on. Uh, <laughs> might break a few toes in the process, but you're definitely going to be a, an evangelical in our mold. This is how you must be. Yeah. Um, so that's that's one of those areas where it it just doesn't necessarily fit. And and you're right that that the, the more that people appeal to the etymology of it, and um, you know, dare we say the original intent. Yeah. Uh, can we use the term originalism these days? <laughs> um, so uh, yeah, and the more people, and more that evangelicals actually appeal to to the etymology of it, it actually creates a, a new group entirely. Uh, but confusingly, is still named the same as the old group. Uh, so there's very little in terms of social group differentiation, because we're still not discussing normativity. We're not discuss- discussing what it makes a group normative. We're discussing what is comparative with the other 
uh, big, you know, I've seen big E evangelical, little E evangelical, little E evangelical say we're not big E evangelicals as in the political tribe because here are all the reasons that we're not that group. And that's a comparative fit metric. Uh, we, we're comparing ourselves with others, mm-hmm. whereas we're not, uh, what is under the table and not being talked about is what makes little e evangelicals normative. Mm. And a lot of the time that's not talked about is, be, is it's not talked about because it's actually shared with the big e evangelicals as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and so if you want differentiation of the groups, you talk about comparative fit. And so this is the struggle, I think, for evangelicals. Can we reclaim a term that actually still makes a lot of sense for the for the group which it it also applies to, or do you do you simply go off and um and make a new group uh, and therefore have a diversity of a further diversification of groups? Uh, I don't know if there is necessarily an answer to that. I think it it depends so much on the context uh, and the salience of the context. So like uh, every year I watch on uh, with ETS, the Evangelical Theological Society, and I wonder, like, you know, I'm still an attender of ETS. I'm a member of ETS, but each year I wonder how much of this is discussing comparative metrics. Mm-hmm. How much of the how how many of the papers are given are majoring on the shibboleths yep. and yep. not majoring on uh, the commonalities, right? Uh, the the in group characteristics, and and I think I think for um, Christians especially. We need to uh, resist that temptation for constantly talking about others, uh, what makes us different, uh, and rather embrace the the challenge of talking about what makes us who we are. Yeah, Uh, embrace the challenge of talking normativity rather than comparativity, Mm. because often you know the thing, and very often the things that we share are far greater than the things that set us apart. Right. Uh, I think I'm I'm firmly convinced this is what Paul does regularly uh, throughout the throughout the epistles. Uh, this is what the gospels do. They talk about the normative things and they place the comparative things of Jesus with his context and the things where that Jesus rightly calls out about his context mm-hmm. in um in contrast with the things that he affirms about the context and affirms about the goodness of humanity, affirms about the goodness of the world, affirms about um, people's desire to see the Messiah, affirms about uh, people's religious devotion. Mm-hmm. And he, he, for as many times as he's critiquing people, he is also affirming uh, what, is, what is shared and normative mm-hmm. about things. Mm-hmm. And so we have this, this discourse which tells us as much about who Jesus was and who uh, he set out to be, yeah. uh, what his normative fit is with us, mm-hmm. what we share with him, mm-hmm. as much as it talks about the comparisons, what is different about mm-hmm. him, what he sought to, co- to confront. Um, and yet we just do a lot of the confronting a lot of the time. And yeah. so I think for, for groups such as ETS, for groups such as our political parties, mm-hmm. um, we need to be talking a lot more about uh, what makes us who we are. Uh, mm-hmm. So here in Australia, um, and I, I know to some degree, it's a, you, know, you seem to have a, a better system of this in the US, uh, but in Australia, in our last election, we had parties who hadn't even come up with policy statements on most things, mm-hmm. except that their policy was not what the other party was. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we had, yeah, parties had policy statements which were not A and not B, mm-hmm. rather than saying, X, Y, and Z is what we're going to do. Right, uh, we right. need to major on 
uh, discourse which espouses our sense of identity, who we are, rather than denying who we're not. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's really great. And I think too, even with our division, uh, as just kind of like as we're concluding this conversation, um, I think with our political division, especially in the states right now, you know, for evangelicals, we can agree on a lot of the principles and it's the policy differences is really where the division lies. And so we might not agree on what's the best way to get about, you know, implementing this uh, priority and principle and value that we have. And I think, you know, taking a step back and noting those common values and 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 maybe not focusing um uh, as much on the kind of policy differences obviously those are huge they're massive but i think i think maybe a way forward is to recognize that you know a lot of these kind of differences in policy that evangelicals are, are advocating for across the aisle right we can see a we can see those common principles common values common priorities that are that are motivating some of that we just kind of disagree a bit on how to implement that maybe that's kind of helpful way to find common ground to get back to that normativity of who are we as evangelicals especially in this divided political climate yeah, absolutely. And I think this is what Maeve gets at uh, when she talks about things requiring compromise. Mm-hmm. Uh, in order to get any political engagement done, you need to find what is common yeah. um, and prioritize what is common al- common between people. Mm-hmm. And you may compromise on some of the details, mm-hmm. uh, but you prioritize what is common and what is normative mm-hmm. uh, in a shared vision. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's great. Well, this has been a wonderful conversation, Chris. Thanks for um, being a part of this and sharing a bit more about social identity theory and thinking about how this applies, especially right now as we're gearing up for November 3rd. Yeah, all the best for for the election season. It's one of those kind of terrifying but exciting times. And I'm sad not to be in the States to debrief all over a good craft beer. Well, Well, we'll do it virtually. Yeah, indeed. If you'd like more engagement of Theology, Culture, and Discipleship from The Two Cities, you can find us on Facebook, Instagram, or visit us at our website at thetwocities.com. If you like the content that we put out here on The Two Cities Podcast, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts.